Welcome to Gear Vlogs Automotive Podcast, a hybrid call-in talk show where you, the viewer or listener of the Gear Vlogs YouTube channel, can tune in and listen to the latest in automotive news and happenings within the automotive space. I'm Mario Gear. Want to be a part of the show? It's easy. Just call our show voicemail hotline at 805-419-5129 any time of the day of the week before the following Thursday and leave a message or please follow us on the Clubhouse app. Become a member of the Gear Vlogs Gearheads Club on Clubhouse and raise your hand to come on stage and be a part of the community when we go live. Most nights starting at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. So sit back, relax, and crack open the cold one. Hello, today's guest is Ori Spado. He was born in 1944 in Rome, New York, in 1962. Joined the U.S. Oh, 63. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, Miami, 63 to 66. Okay. Um, joined the U.S. Army, and welcome, Ori. Um, thank you for taking your time or your morning to uh, sit down with me. My pleasure. Um, let's see. So after you did your stint in the army and you were honorably discharged, you came back home to Rome, New York. And then obviously you, what did you do then? You do a bunch of odd jobs or did you go straight into selling yeah. insurance? Yeah. Let me tell you the story a mile. Sure. I, uh, you know, I first landed in uh, Los Angeles. I was going to live here. I had a job lined up with Pan American Airlines. I was engaged to a uh, a gal that was a, her father didn't want her to marry me uh, because we were different religions. And uh, so I ended up going back to Rome, New York. My father says, son, you should have stayed in California. There's nothing here for you. I said, dad, give me a job at Revere. I'll work the night shift. I'll save my money, and I'll go back to California. And he did. He got me a job. I worked at Revere three weeks and three days. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> I couldn't take it. It kind of sounds uh, like oh, my, my father as well. Um, when he came here with my uh, our family, he my father spent 20-plus years in the Portuguese Army, and then... He says, had enough. He already was married to my mom and had my brother. And then he says, the way things were with the Portuguese colonial wars, he says, I've had enough of this. And he said, he put in his papers, got out. First thing, he landed in Boston and um, got himself a job in a electric plant, building, rebuilding electric motors. They loved him. They wanted him to stay. But my dad says, I can't stand this cold. And he had all of his sisters out here on the West Coast, came out here. So, it's something about California and the West Coast. Yeah. And from there, I went to another factory, uh, Kelsey Hayes. Uh, we made airline parts. I stayed there a few months. And I and from there, I ended up in the insurance business with the Prudential Insurance Company. And I found a true love. I loved the insurance business. Uh, I became the leading agent, a member of the Million Dollar Roundtable. I was doing very, very, very good. 
And then I uh, threw a few uh, not more ups and downs uh, back to California in 1971 with my wife and my daughter at the time. And I was in the insurance business out here as well as other things. Uh, but because I had a lot of real estate with my cousin back east, I had to go back and take care of things. And I ended up becoming a general agent for Franklin United Life Insurance Company out of Garden City, Long Island. And the president of the company became my mentor. His name was George Rogan, really great guy. And my territory was only Oneida and Onondaga counties in upstate New York. And one of the insurances they had, which was new to me, and I learned it very well, was credit life and accident health on the financing of loans for automobile dealers. It was a way for automobile dealers to make extra money, and of course I made money. And as I was calling on dealers, I found out that a problem they had was, you know, you could only put the insurance when the dealer financed it through his financing sources at the dealership. So they needed a plan, and I devised a plan. I was one of the pioneers in this business, were to increase the finance penetration. Because the dealer could sell a car at cost and make more money on the finance than you would on the car. So I increased the uh, finance penetration, I trained the salespeople, and then I opened the school, and I started training finance and insurance managers, or business managers, we had all sorts of names for them, and placed them in dealerships. And I couldn't expand beyond Oneida and Onondaga County, with the George Grogan, and I asked him for more territory because he had other agents he could not. He said, but Ori, I said, I know you're not going to stop. You're a hustler. He said, you got my endorsement. Go off on another insurance company you can represent. All right. And I found People's Home Federal out of Battle Creek, Michigan, and I was given the entire state of New York. And from there, I only grew. I had over 250 automobile dealers as clients. In addition to the credit life and accident health, we had polyglyco, which was a sealant to put on the car, guaranteed for three years. We were really well known throughout the world. It was big, big, big. Plus, we had the paint sealer, fabric protector. Then we got car alarms warranties, and anything you could think of, we were placing in dealerships and we're making dealers a lot of money, an awful lot of money. And there, there's a guy out of Chicago named Pat Ryan Associates. When I was operating in New York, he stopped because he could not compete with me. <laughs> and it was the best business I ever had. Okay, and 
this will kind of lead into the next question. And I think I heard a story similar to one of the products you mentioned. This kind of got you, I don't know, a sit down with um, Sonny Francais. Sonny Francais, yeah. Walter Faison, who was the president and owner of Polly's Lightboat. <laughs> uh, back in those days, if you got the automotive news, Every week, we had the full back page of the automotive news. Mm -hmm. I mean, you would have thought we were a company in a skyscraper in New York that we owned the building. That's how much advertising. Anytime you turned your TV on, we were on TV. No need. Walter was big. He was very, he and I became very close friends. Very creative individual. And he began many years before selling cars when the only choice of color you had was black or black. <laughs> That's how far he went back. Uh, and he, uh, he gave Nassau County, Nassau or something, to his brother-in-law, who happened to be friends with another individual that was a wise guy. And they were putting the warranties on a inferior product and selling it as polyglycol. Walter found out about it and threatened to take the franchise away from them. And he started getting death threat calls. Of course, he called me immediately. I told him, Walter, nobody's going to call you up and threaten you. But he could sit constantly got him. And then he, I was in Florida, and he was in Florida. He asked me to go to New York to close Victor Potomkin Cadillac. Victor Potomkin was one of the largest Cadillac dealers at the time. And we flew into New York. We closed Victor Potomkin. And from there, we all got in a limo, and we went to Club 21 for lunch. When we sat down, Walter went to the phone. We didn't have cell phones then. Called his office. He came back, white as a ghost, leaned over, and he says, Kid, I know you're wired in. This is serious. Can you stay in New York until we find out? So I ended up making a few calls. And I ended up meeting Sonny Franchise and his family for dinner. And Sonny found out who it was. Saw him in my book, The Accidental Gangster, uh, with the names and so forth of the people. And uh, I resolved the issue. So we got it taken care of. And from there, Sonny Franchise, when the, we had a meeting in the Russian tea room, and he, he liked me. He said, kid, you got boss. You're with me for no one. And he and I became friends for over 45 years, up until his death at the age of 103, two years ago. I know there's like... um depending on what side or story you believe on, 
do you believe that the feds actually set him up for the, I think it was a bank robbery charges, in your opinion? Uh, I firmly believe that he was set up. Who set him up is in question. Uh, I have my theories on that, which I will not get into. Was it the feds who set him up? No, somebody else set him up for the feds to get him. Well, what we know today, what's happening in today, modern news today, anything's possible, right? Yeah. Oh, well. And so after that, you develop a relationship. So then what happened then? Then you eventually decided to move out to California? Yeah, I moved back to California. I became a Hollywood sexer. Uh, for other celebrities, studios, lawyers, agents, and everybody. And uh, I built a name and a reputation upon that there. Okay. Now, considering your involvement with the wise guys, I don't know what the proper... To give them respect. I don't want to insult anybody. Um, I'll just say associates, I guess. Would be the proper term. Yeah, you can say. Okay, um, and now with the recent Amazon Prime Paramount Plus movie release of the behind-the-scenes biopic of The Godfather, making the call the offer. It's right now. I'm up at the episode four of the film. They're kind of like portraying a lot of times of, and I know he was a friend of yours. Frank Sinatra was definitely against the making of the movie. Did you have any interactions with him during that time frame? Or was this before you met him? During that time, no. If any, with Frank. Okay. No. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, I knew Frank after that, there, shortly after that. Gotcha. Um, we never discussed that there. Um, we had many conversations and other subjects, but that was, you know, uh, why he was against it. Uh, I gotta be honest with you. I don't know. That's anybody's guess whether, whether he was really against it or not. We really don't know. True. There's no proof of that. True again. Okay. Because being against it didn't actually come out until after the movie. After the movie, and with that thing that he wanted, uh, Johnny, that he wanted, you know, the horses had they put in the guy's bed, which was voice yet. <clears throat> you know, you got to remember something. Mm-hmm. Up until the movie, The Godfather, La Cosa Nostra, or Mafia, whatever you want to call it was a secret society. That's how it was established. That's how it always should have been. But that movie brought it out and it glorified the life of a gangster. And therefore, a lot of younger people wanted to get involved, and some did. And then when a problem arose, they started writing. And, you know, today... Is there still La Costa Nostra? Yes. Is it as it used to be? No, and never will come back. 
I want to kind of like double back. Um, you also mentioned when you were, I guess, got into the insurance industry, there was a particular book that somebody had given you as part of your training. I think it was when you joined Prudential. Um, I think it was called uh, uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. No, that wasn't with the Prudential. Okay. That's another time that so just before I went broke and I went to work for combined group of insurance companies, which was owned by W. Clement Stone out of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, w. Clement Stone happened to be the largest contributor to the Richard Nixon. And they sent me to school for two weeks in Boston. And the first book they gave us was Take and Grow Rich. The other book was a success system that never fails, written by W. Connor Stone. Two of the best books out there. When I first read that book, though, you know, with all the things they were saying, and I said, man, this old bastard put names to what I was really doing in life. You know, I had been doing all that there. I've been hustling since I was 10, 11 years old. And I think, you know, a shame that we have in today's world is there's no more paper boys. I apologize for that ringing. They're doing a testing today of the alarms in the building. So if you're hearing that there, uh, that's what's going on here. Uh, yeah, so what was I saying? Uh, I forgot. <laughs> uh, we were talking about uh, the... Um the book Napoleon, um, the gentleman, uh, the author. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I started saying that it's a shame that in today's world there's no paper boys because it's probably uh, some of the best training for insurance or any type of sales because there's a paper boy part, be, besides just delivering papers, you went out and knock on doors to get new subscribers. That's true. So, you know, you would learn how to overcome those fears of talking to people and knocking on doors. That's what Paperwell did. Another thing our country done, they got rid of the draft. If we would have kept the draft, then more people went into the military. We wouldn't be having all these problems we're having in the world. We'd be making more men. Uh, they would learn respect, honor, loyalty. You learned that in the military. True. And, you know, so slowly but surely all these things are being taken away. Well, this brings up a good question. Other countries in had, like, mandatory requirements, uh, I think Portugal was one, Israel was another, where you had to do X amount of service when you became a legal age. You would have to do a minimum of X amount of years. Do you think that right. something like that would uh, be a beneficial to the country instead of having a draft? Yeah, well, you know, it's basically, the, you know, you change the word a little, it's the same thing as having a draft. True. Making a mandatory, yeah. 18 years old, they got to go on. You know, has some look, look at these people. The Israelis are great at what they do. Yep. 
you know. And I met a lot of these guys. They're they're military support. They're 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 really great because they handle you got that camaraderie. You learn so much through something like that there. And pride, I believe, also in your nation as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we got that. We don't have that. Instead, they uh, they prefer to uh, fill our prisons with bullshit laws that they keep making every day. Okay. And all it does is make society worse. Right. And then I heard you on go off on that tangent. I. Personally, I don't care what a person's political belief is. They're entitled to it. So one way or another, and obviously we got a person in the White House right now that probably wrote the worst crime bill in the world. 1991. Yep. 1991, the worst crime bill. He wrote it. Yep. <laughs> that he just signed it and passed it as Bill Clinton did. Okay. And then Bill Clinton would later say, uh, because Bill Clinton didn't really even know that minimum mandatory sentencing was included in that bill. He said, if I would have known it was in there, I never would have signed it. That goes to show you that, you know, in our political world in Washington, you know, if you pass a bill, it should be for that one thing. But no, they pass a bill. It's 1,800, 2,000 pages or longer. Because every congressman, every senator has got to have a little something. And it's just not about what they talk about the main issue. Take the COVID relief. You think, okay, relief for COVID. And that's the only thing that you hear on when you want listen to news or read the news. Relief for COVID. They've got a zillion other things in there. Probably money for a museum someplace, which has nothing to do with COVID. Right. You know, and that's how these bills are made. And it's not our senators and congressmen who write these bills. It's the lobbyists who write the bills. But the American people don't know this. Oh, exactly. It's like, um, because recently this, the senator, the female senator from Georgia, or the congresswoman from Georgia, who got in office and they tried to cancel her. They tried, they took her to court saying that she was an insurrectionist and all that stuff, but she was acquitted. So, as of Friday. But, one thing I learned about her, you know, that you won't hear from the news is while since they stripped her away of all of her committees, so what she started demanding while she was on the floor, calling for a vote of every bill that was, they were trying to pass. Before how they, the good old boy network in D.C. was, only maybe a handful of people would uh, just say, take a quick vote, yay or nay, and the bill would get passed. But now what she was doing is getting everyone to be put on record. So meaning if they were in another committee or on a phone call or doing a fundraising, they had to stop what they were doing, show up, and get on record. And there wasn't one bill that somebody was trying to pass. And I don't know how you're going to feel about this one, but it was to give convicts in prison the right to vote while in prison. 
What? Yeah, there was a bill that they were trying to pass that would give prisoners the right to vote while in prison. They were trying to pass that. And if she hadn't passed that or called for a recall, the bill would have passed. But because of the fact that she called for a recall and then everyone realized, what? What? The bill got defeated. So she started doing this more and more. And yet you don't hear about this in mainstream news. They just want to call her crazy, call her a conspiracy theorist and whatnot. So, yeah, that's a lot of dirty hands when... Uh... But let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Why should a citizen of this country not have the right to vote? No matter where you're at. Why should his rights of a citizen be taken away from him because he broke the law? I feel after he, he served his, paid his time, his debt to society, I believe he should have the right to vote afterwards. But while he's locked up? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I I, I got the right to vote immediately upon my release here in California. Mm -hmm. well, uh, some states have it, some don't. Which I have no problem with. If you if you you committed a crime or alleged crime, whatever you've been sentenced, you were judged by your peers, you served your time, paid your debt to society, which obviously you did and a lot of other people, then they should get their rights restored. That's just my opinion. But. And which brings, you know, um, sorry, I was going to bring up, which kind of brings me kind of back up to you, or slightly onto your, back to your ground. When they brought those charges onto you, where they had to bring you back, or to the East Coast, you talk about one of the, the uh, I guess it was a gun charge that they, uh, yeah, 924 gun charge. So the U.S. Supreme Court Which, determined but, uh, that it was... I could thank Joe Biden. You know something? I just did an interview. And people were asking me, why are there so many informants today? Particularly in the Costa Nostra. So if you don't mind... Sure. In the way I see it. Mm -hmm. In 1931... In Atlantic City, Lucky Luciano and all other crime figures from around the country formed in a commission. Lucky made the commission. In those days, if you got a 10, 15, 20 year bid on a crime, you did three to five years and you were out. Which is you could do standing on your head. There were no conspiracy charges. There were no minimum mandatory. None of that stuff. The judge is the person who sentenced you. And it's the way it should be. Because the judge knows Mario. He's read every document on Mario. He knows who you are. Mm -hmm. Okay? Congress, sitting in Washington should not be indicting, uh, should not be sentencing you. But let's go now, 1931. 
Then in 1971, Richard Nixon signed the RICO Act. He did not sign it as most people think to get rid of organized crime because that was not going to happen because his FBI director was J. Edgar Hoover, who was not going after organized crime. Nixon signed it to stop the flow of drugs from coming into this country. We all know how that worked, though. Right. 1971, until somewhere in 1980, the RICO Act was not actually being used except for civil purposes. But Rudy Giuliani, from the book that Joe Bonanno wrote, Joe Bonanno actually had the whole blueprint of how La Costa Nostra worked. And Giuliani, after reading that book, all he had to do was take it from where Joe Bonanno left off to bring it to current, and he started using the RICO Act. Now you've got conspiracy to come upon conspiracy. And now, sentencing from three to five years, you were getting telephone numbers as a sentence. It's pretty scary now. Yes, it is. All right. Then in 1991, what most people do not realize, this is another thing they don't realize. In the crime bill that Joe Biden wrote, he increased sentencing guidelines in the federal system to eighty to 85%, which means you got sentence of 10 years, you got to do eight and a half years. Okay? Mm-hmm. They get the states to increase it. They And I call it a bribe. Joe Biden had billions of dollars in there to give to the states if they only, if they increased their Guidelines to eighty five percent. Well, to take the goddamn money, most of them did it. That's a bribe in my book. Okay, so you know it become a very scary situation. I mean, a guy does a little crime and he's in there on an organized crime case. You know, there's a few guys that I happen to know who you know that I talked to today that were informers and got out of prison. Sammy Gravano. I can't blame Sammy. Sammy could do time standing on his head. That's not a problem. He proved that. Yes, he did. And I even heard he uh, he told the story of uh, I don't want to get go get into it. That's his story to tell. But um, all I can, all I can say is a certain prison gang, I guess you could call them them, gave them their blessing in it, that him to receive a specific tattoo that was heavily tied to their mythology or such, and they granted him permission, and he took it as a badge of honor and got it and all of that fun stuff. Just Google it, folks, well, and you will see it. Why he informed, Okay. Sammy was a big earner and did a lot of killings for John Gotti. Mm-hmm. Okay. Big earner. Okay. And then he hears a tape where Sammy says, Sammy, where John says, Sammy's got to go. What would you think? Yep. Your loyalty right. goes out the door. 
Yeah. You know, they would run out the door. You know, so many rules of La Cosa Nostra have been broken and are broken, and they're broken by the bosses today. Mm-hmm. And the bosses make informants. All right, the bosses will tell you, hey, Mario, if you're already doing something, you got to come and tell me. You got to tell me everything. So they build up their little thing of they got their own snitches. You follow me? I follow you. So now what happens when there's a bust? These guys get busted. They've already been snitches, so it's not a big deal for them. Right. Yeah, it's it's how society is, and unfortunately, well, Mario, I like to talk about some better things. Sure. Okay, definitely. Let's go I, ahead. I know I follow him, so you know I try to stay out of this uh, gang or bullshit. I'm trying to help make this world a better place. Mm-hmm. You know, as a, I was not only just a gangster, but I was a successful business person, having built multi-million-dollar businesses. And I'm sharing how to do that with other people. I'm going to begin a training program for people. Anybody interested, they could uh, email me at the Accidental Gangster at Gmail dot com. And provide me with a phone number. I'm only taking about four or five people to train because my time is limited. Uh, but I want to teach some people how to become independently wealthy through the art of selling and becoming a gentleman. Uh, you're aware of Clubhouse, aren't you? Yes, I am. I believe okay. that's how we where we met. Yeah. Well. You know, they're starting to call me the godfather of Clubhouse. And I met this gentleman, Jay Briska, out of Brooklyn. And he been doing a room on Sundays. And they've been getting money because, as you know, there are so many cons going on in Clubhouse and other social media. I mean, these con men are taking people's money left and right. And I'm talking about hardworking people, you know. Right. And build a dream and taking their freaking money. Well, Jay and this uh, lady out of Chicago, a lawyer named Julie, they've been helping these people. And they've been getting money back for these people, from these scammers. And I mean, say we have hundreds of people. We had 3,000 people come through the room the other day. And now, uh, Jay and I and Julie are starting another room this Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. A lot of women are being stalked and sexually abused on social media. We've been getting a lot of complaints, so now we're going to start going after these guys doing our investigations to our private investigators and so forth and expose these guys who are there. A lot of them are not using their real name, which you can go on. You know, I mean, everything about me, my name is out there. My name's attached to it. 
My phone number is registered to me. Okay. <laughs> I investigated one guy yesterday. He's got a murder telephone. We know it's not his real name. He says he's got a billion dollar business. This guy don't have two nickels to rub together. And he's stalking women, taxing them, all sorts of crap. These women are getting frightened. It's got to stop. Exactly. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all these companies are not doing a damn thing. All they're interested in doing is increasing their numbers, the number of subscribers they got. They don't care if you're dead. If you're dead, they don't take you off as a subscriber. And that is funny that you should mention that because I was actually going through my Facebook pro profile and I came to a section that says, in the event that I die, do I want to uh, assign somebody else to take over my account when I die? You believe that? It's fucking nuts. Yep. It's crazy. But here's another thing. I've done the same thing as you. Because I keep going up. I have 5,000 on my on my personal page. Okay, which you're only allowed to have 5,000. Right. All right. But I go through it and I see all these pictures, uh, all these no photos in the picture. Okay. These are people who had deactivated their counts and are no longer on, but they still count as a follower to you. So I had to go through and I delete, 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 you know what I mean? Or unfriend, yep. unfollow, whatever they call it. Right. That's crazy. So your book, The Accidental Gangster, where can people find it or get their hands on it? Well, the best place that I tell people to go is go to my website, theexitalgangster.com. Purchase it from there. It's actually $5 less than what Amazon sells it for. And you get an autograph book. It, it mentions Mario Show. I will give them the free audio book as a gift so they will not only get the book they get the audio book too and they get it autographed and that's a hell of a deal yes it is and thank you for offering that to my listeners i will definitely uh, put that in the show notes where to go and the comment that you mentioned how long will that offer be for so i can tell people you know like if maybe a year or two years down the road somebody listens to this podcast uh, for <laughs> for the next uh, fourteen days. Next fourteen days, perfect. Definitely, I'll mention that in the show notes. Um, cool. Uh, let's see. Is there anything that I may have forgotten to ask you uh, that you want to let myself in the audience know? Well, I would like your audience to know if you're being stalked, abused, sexually you're female or man, okay, come to our room and clubhouse at four, uh, 3 p.m. Wednesday. 3 p.m., I'm sorry, it's 3 p.m. Western time. And if you're on clubhouse, I have my own room, The Accidental Gangster, on Fridays at 4 o'clock. So you don't want to miss these rooms. 
Definitely not. Right. And I will obviously have links to your clubhouse as well as Jay's room. Um, so you guys can definitely check them out. So I'll definitely have links in there for everyone to follow. So Mario, thank you very much. I appreciate you doing this. Let's get the word out. Let's help people make this world a better place. Definitely will do. So if you're not following, please subscribe, hit that like button, and uh, share this video out to your friends. And as another friend Jamie would say, we're out in three, two, one.